the Great British Manufacturing Podcast, brought to you by MTD, MFD and Jefferson. Hello and welcome to this week's Great British Manufacturing Podcast. On this week's show, we will review the latest positive news from British manufacturing sector and welcome a special guest, Phil Wild, Chief Executive Officer of James Cropper, the Advanced Materials and Paper Products Group. This week, we're delighted to welcome two new members to the Factory Now platform. New members this week include Coventry-based Manufacturing Technology Centre, home to some of the world's most advanced manufacturing equipment and award-winning apprenticeship scheme, and AIS Vanguard, one of the UK's premier engineering service providers specialising in heavy technical lifting, logistics and installation. My name is Joe Reynolds and joining me now is my co-host Stuart Whitehead. Stuart, another fantastic week in the world of UK manufacturing. Absolutely. After Nissan's announcement last week, we thought it might be a bit of a come down this week, but far from it, Joe. Yeah, let's jump straight in, shall we? The, the future of Vauxhall's Ellesmere port plant, you know, it's looking looking secure, isn't it? 100 million investment. Absolutely. So Vauxhall owner Stellantis has announced it will invest £100 million to build electric vehicles at the Ellesmere port plant in Cheshire. The factory will build four electric vans and their passenger car equivalents for the parent company's brands, Vauxhall, Opel, Peugeot and Citroën. The decision, which we believe is backed by a reported £30 million in government support, will secure the jobs of 1,000 workers at the plant, as well as an estimated 3,000 in, in the supply chain. Solanta says that there will be further support to enable car- carbon neutrality for the plant by the middle of the decade. It aims to be 100% self-sufficient for electricity, and work will commence shortly on potential wind and solar farms in the area. It's also announced plan to consult on further investment with the creation of a new UK parts distribution centre nearby. Uh, and the next story, it's one we've talked about at length for, for some months, probably years now, but British <laughs> Vault, you know, the new gigafactory in Northumberland, they've got the, what they're calling the green light. Absolutely. So Northumberland County Council has pre-planned by British Vault to build a new battery production facility at the site of the former Blythe Power Station, previously described as the largest industrial investment in the northeast since Nissan's arrival in 1984. The firm has said the gigafactory could begin producing lithium-ion batteries by the end of 2023. The £2.6 billion plant is expected to create 3,000 direct jobs and a further 5,000 across the UK supply chain. The uh, company, SIA, they've announced plans to build a £117 million factory on the Humber. Again, incredible news for the area. It, it certainly is. And, and just some clarification on that. It, it has been originally heralded as a £117 million um, investment, but SIA has now confirmed that the actual figure is more, more than double it. It's likely to be £260 million to be committed over the next three years. And that's only just been confirmed in the last few minutes. Um, Sia Wind, which is actually will be operating a facility as part of the South Korean industrial conglomerate Sia Holdings. And this is going to be the biggest steel monopile production facility in the world when it opens. The monopiles, which are for the... If you're not accustomed to, to them or acquainted with them, they're essentially giant steel tubes that are driven into the seabed to support the construction of offshore wind turbines. These will be supplied from the site to operators in the UK and Europe, but the firm is also planning to target the American and Asian markets. Looking likely to open in 2023, the investment should create around about 750 direct jobs. Yeah, they, 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 these manufacturers are going to have to pull their finger out, aren't they, and start these recruitment drives because there's a there's a lot of jobs at the moment. Absolutely. The skill shortage hasn't gone away. Yes, we've had the pandemic and, and, and so on and so forth, but uh, the, the job market is incredibly healthy and... Um, 
the salaries within manufacturing are, are creeping up as well. So you're absolutely right. They, they need to start planning and, and acting um, and acting now, not waiting for, for the you know for the factory to open. So we'll take a brief pause in this week's uh, Positive UK Manufacturing News. There's plenty more to follow, but at this stage, I'd like to introduce this week's special guest, Phil Wilde, who is the Chief Executive Officer at James Cropper. Phil, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning, Joe. Good morning, Stuart. We like to start a bit about you, really. You know, t- Tell us about your career to date, your role and your responsibility at, at, at James Cropper. Uh, great. I'd be, I'd be delighted to. Um, I started off as a, an engineering apprentice um, quite a few years ago now and started my career working for uh, Lucas in both the UK and uh, in France and uh, actually in diesel systems and how times change moving, uh, moving forward, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Um, I then went on to do an engineering degree and I worked for a company after I graduated, uh, a 3M company, uh, who were made famous for their, uh, for their post-it notes. And I worked in industrial and in healthcare and in the security sector. And I started as an engineer. Um, and, and interestingly, uh, Joe, despite my very strong passion for manufacturing, I actually realized I wasn't a terribly good engineer. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I found myself progressing more down the management uh, route, and I was delighted to be able to run my own manufacturing sites and then multiple sites, uh, and eventually was uh, you know, a director of a number of businesses within, the, within 3M. Um, I then left in 2012, having spent you know, over 20 years with, uh, with 3M, and I joined James Cropper in, uh, in 2012. Fascinating, fascinating, and it's, uh, you're doing a jolly good job for all it's worth, but can we get an overview of the company, an overview of James Cropper? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so, just uh, just out of interest, you know, it's a, it's a special year for us this year. Uh, so, we're celebrating two hundred and seventy five years of the uh, of the company being in existence this year. Um, so, James Cropper, uh, today we're we're over one hundred million uh, sales. We've got uh, over six hundred employees in four different manufacturing locations in the UK uh, and also in the US as uh, as well. And we're we're exporting now about sixty percent of the products that are uh, that are produced. Uh, now, interestingly, I, when I sort of describe that, but the the head office is uh, we're in the Lake District, so we're a we're a rural business, which also brings some unique characteristics and also values to uh, to our businesses uh, as well. Um, and we have three different businesses within the James Cropper Group: uh, paper, color form, and technical fiber. And paper is a, a, a bespoke paper mill, and that really goes back to the heritage. So that's, that's the 275 years of history of the, uh, the company. But, but today we're making bespoke papers for the likes of Burberry, Mulberry, Louis Vuitton, uh, Apple. So, you know, high quality luxury brands. Our Colourform business manufactures sustainable alternatives to, to single use plastics and you know, brands such as uh, Moe Hennessy uh, and a whole range of beauty products like Armani, Lancome, uh, Dior, and so on. And our technical fiber uh, business manufactures materials that go into uh, sectors such as aerospace, like Boeing and like Airbus, uh, but also more often into the, manuf- into the hydrogen sector for both manufacturing of fuel cells, but also the manufacturing of hydrogen itself. 
Fantastic summary and uh, great to hear about your personal journey as well, um, Phil. And happy anniversary. I'm not sure what you get to somebody who's 275 years old, but um, plenty of gold or platinum. Um, so first question for me, this is from one of our uh, listeners. Sustainability is very much a core commercial proposition for James Cropper. Why is this so important? What does it actually mean? And could you please give us some examples? So I, I think your answer to a celebrating 275 years, by the way, is we get we get out of lockdown. That's uh, that's <laughs> yeah, our celebration. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think for for us, sustainability has been at the heart of what we've uh, what the business has been founded on for for decades. And uh, you know, so for example, the paper business uh, is is you know to some degree an alternative to uh, to plastics and. You know, as whereas paper would be manufactured from a sustainable source, it's also biodegradable, compostable, recyclable as uh, as well. You know, our, our head office sits in the in a national heritage site, um, uh, and also we're in a you know a, a site of special scientific interest as uh, as well. So there's a lot of culture that really builds up to uh, to this, and I think what we've seen is uh, over the years environmental and now i would sort of expand that to sort of esg uh environmental social and governance uh has become far more fashionable um uh, particularly within the man- manufacturing sector but now that you, that's also expanded extended into uh, the service sector as uh, as well and whereas it has and i i you know absolutely endorse that because i think it's the it's the right thing to do it sits with our ethics um uh, and the values of uh, of what we stand for. Um, I would also add, but uh, and what I mean by that is what we're also seeing is um, others sort of jumping on the coattails of environmental ESG sustainability. Uh, we see a lot of uh, you know greenwashing that's uh, that's happening. Whether it's you know a, a company, for example, that they've invested in seaweed when actually it has nothing to do with their their business. And and I think what um, where we where we position this is, it's actually embedded in the commercial proposition of the company. So rather than a a separate initiative to tick the box of you know ESG or tick the box of sustainability or, or environmental, you know we've positioned this very much at the heart of our commercial strategy uh, for what we do. And I would sort of coin a phrase, you know, from waste to wealth. And what I mean by that is by using materials that perhaps otherwise would go to landfill, you know, we're, we're really actively looking at different materials and different processes that we can reuse. And what we describe is that upcycling into, into much better products. You know, and I've got you know, a whole series of examples that we can, uh, we can share with you. No, fantastic. And you referenced the, you know, ESG, the transition from sustainability to SG. Again, could you please describe this for our listeners and, and the associated benefits? And like you say, if you could, you know, give us some examples, that would be fantastic to uh, to to illustrate that. So, I, if you sort of separate that out a little bit, so the, the, yes, yeah, environmental, social, and, and governance, and and whereas you know, the through the years, you know, we've had a built uh, a business that's been built on sustainability. You know, really that that's been covering the environmental aspect, um, and I, I, you know. Talk about a number of examples uh, in there. You know, the, the social aspect for, for us uh, is about a responsibility of, of the company and the responsibility of you know to employees, 
to the community, uh, to stakeholders. And again, a couple of examples on that. And, and good governance and yeah, being a PLC and, and, and as many of your listeners will uh, will be aware, particularly about being part of a, a, you know, a FTSE company, you know, governance is, is only going in one direction. Uh, and it's important to to have that right level of governance in place. So, three three quite different aspects. But let, let, let me give you let me give you a couple of examples. And uh, and this is where I would sort of describe, um, you know, the journey that we've been on is about being the real deal, and um, as opposed to, you know, there's a set of sort of checklists that we need to do, and we've we've tinkered with this. You know, this actually sits at the heart. Of what uh, of what the company is about. So, a couple of examples from you uh, that I can provide. Um, so let's let's use the one on uh, on coffee cups, uh, and just just anecdotally, by the way, are you aware that there's 500 billion single use coffee cups are used each year, and the majority of those go straight to landfill. That's that's 10 billion a day, and even in the UK. We're using over two and a half billion coffee cups a year, a year single-use coffee cups, and and we looked at that, and we we looked at this differently on a coffee cup, and we actually saw it as a as a raw material. So rather than it moved to landfill, we've developed a process that extracts the plastic from the inside of the coffee cup, and then that then is then sold on to a third party and used for a whole series of uh, a different plastic applications where it's uh, where it's reused. But then when we're extracting the fibers from the from the coffee cups and then reusing those in our manufacturing for both um, paper and uh, and also in uh, in color form as well. Now we've coined the uh, the phrase cup cycling because we're we're taking the cup and we are upcycling it into into different products. Um, so the you know the cups are coming from people like Costa and McDonald's and there are all the sort of uh, you know. Uh, high street coffee shops that we'd all be aware of, and, I'm, and here I'm talking about used coffee cups, not uh, not virgin material. And uh, we're taking that, we're processing it, and uh, and we're we're producing luxury papers out. So, a couple of very very practical examples. Uh, you know, a a Burberry shopping bag uh, contains four used coffee cups. Um, a Mulberry shopping bag and and box also contains. Used coffee cups as uh, as well. The the Selfridges bag. Uh, so yeah, there are example after example of where beautiful luxury packaging and luxury papers are actually manufactured apart from using using waste material and upcycling it of where it would have gone through to uh, to landfill. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating for me. Can you? Is it is it all about sustainability? Or you know, let's be frank, can you make product? Um, it, it, presumably, it's not cheaper to recycle upcycle cups into bags. Presumably, it would be cheaper to make it from virgin material. That do you know what? It's an excellent question, and let uh, sort of econ- um, the economics do the talking on uh, on this, because in, in order to do this. Clearly, you need to invest in a in a process. You need to drive innovation about thinking differently. Um, however, you know waste materials are typically cheaper. But materials that go into landfill are going to be cheaper than virgin materials coming coming through. So we can also uh, we can also leverage value from coming out. And this is why I sort of coined this phrase of uh, you know um, from from waste to wealth. Yeah, we're taking waste materials and we're generating wealth to to come out from that. So it actually, it is it is in fact the opposite. So yeah, uh, taking apart from the upfront investment to uh, to do this, 
actually we're providing materials that are, are lower cost to the uh, to the company, and therefore you know we, we're taking it out of landfill and we're providing value from uh, from that material. So that's where it becomes a commercial proposition to be able to move in this uh, in this direction. Well, that's uh, that's win win, isn't it? You can't lose really. It, it must be an absolute. I just can't imagine a supply chain. You, do you have to go and pick them up from each individual McDonald's, or are they picked picked up from a central site, or how does that work? So. In, all, in order for this to work, you need to set up a value chain. Um, and uh, so we work with partners like Veolia and so on who would um, you know, work within the shops uh, but also work on the, on the high street as, uh, as well. Uh, and we've created a value chain that we will pay a premium for a coffee cup compared to the value that, that, that people like Veolia would get, uh, would get elsewhere. And by doing that, you know, we're providing an incentive for them to, to filter it out. You know, and they would come in, come in bundles of a quarter of a million a time, uh, compress and uh, arrive to our site, all local, by the way, so all from the UK. So uh, you know, uh, you know, it's not sort of going through some long supply chain to, uh, to get to us. Uh, and then we would process it from, uh, from there. Yeah, we, and we can cope with, a reasonable amount of waste, but most of the weight is filtered out before it uh, before it comes to us. Fascinating. No, absolutely. Just going to ask Phil: Are your customers specifying a certain percentage of recycled material in their products? Is it being driven by them, or you, or very much a partnership? Do you know, it's such a great question. Um, if I rewind back the clock uh, a few years ago now. Um, to some degree, this was a, a little bit of a, uh, a an innovation and and actually a, a, almost a secret in the in the market that we had a process that could that could do this. And when we started to to engage customers on, actually, we've got a, you know, a, a really interesting environmental proposition here. Um, it didn't resound that well. I'm probably going back just just about five years ago now. And what we've seen o- over those years is is an increased uh, interest and uh, and value around the sustainability proposition that now we've we've got customers coming to us and saying actually can you provide material that is you know coming from waste sources so it's it's a real turnaround and i think it's particularly you know moving forward um it's not going to be good enough just to provide environmental credentials you're going to have to go above and beyond and do some things that are different and differentiate yourself. And and this is kind of a good example of doing that. But certainly, you know, we've seen customer behaviors and and also end customer behaviors of people, um, you know, selecting product from from retail and actually checking the credentials of those products now uh, on whether it's you know social or or sustainability in order to uh, to drive their buying habits. That's fascinating. Do you have any more examples? So we uh, we developed a, a new business just a couple of years ago called uh, called Colorform, and uh, Colorform is an alternative to to single use plastics. And, and just just for for interest, by the way, there's 380 million tons of vacuum form plastic that are produced every year, and that's equivalent to over a thousand Empire State buildings, and most of which are, are either not recyclable. Because they're a part of mixed waste and go to uh, and go to landfill, so we developed a process using uh, essentially paper to be able to produce uh, an alternative to uh, to uh, single-use plastic. So it's a, a 3D formed shape from from cellulose. So so again, it it either comes from uh, uh, from virgin fibre or we can use waste fibre. It's compostable, biodegradable, 
uh, and recyclable. And that's a business that, um, you know, it, for us is a, what we describe as a new business, um, particularly given given our age, uh, but been going uh, just, a, just two or three years now. Uh, and now we're providing materials that go into people like uh, Diesel, L'Oreal, Armani. Uh, we've just launched uh, a packaging for Runard Champagne with, uh, with Moe Hennessy, and all of which a result of being take, uh, have been removing single-use plastics for, that were uh, previously existing in their, in their packaging with colour form, um, which has provided if you like, the, the perfect alternative to single-use plastics, but gives that sustainability credential. Yeah, I, I, to give you a, just give you one one other example, we've got a lot of uh, manufacturing operations through through the UK and also in the US as well. Uh, our head office in uh, in the Lake District uh, has got plenty of factories and plenty of warehouse, and we've utilised those roofs to put arrays of solar panels. And and today we're generating over a gigawatt of uh, of energy. So that's enough energy to run a thousand homes for a year. Uh, driven from the solar panels. Now, the unique piece of this is it's actually a crowdfunding um, uh, opportunity that we've uh, that we've driven, and it's been crowdfunded by the community. So, actually, the community owns the solar panels. We we've committed to use our roofs to uh, to put them on, and we've also guaranteed that we will also take every bit of energy that comes off and drive that as green energy to uh, to power our some of our manufacturing process. But all of the profits go back into the community, and that's actually that's quite a good example of both environmental and social. When we come back to uh, to ESG, yeah, to, yeah, that's fascinating, and many many more companies should follow. But it, it's fair to say this isn't going away, is it? ESG, it's you know, it's not a fad. This is only going to become more and more important as time moves on. Like I say, I mean, yeah, and I think as as the understanding and the governance really starts to appear on ESG. Um, it's going to come under greater scrutiny, and actually, it, it's going to become a, a benchmark or a, a, almost a ticket in order to be able to manufacture. You know, it won't be good enough to uh, uh, to not to be on uh, the agenda of driving this uh, driving this forward. And you know, and I think it will also drive, and as it has done for us, the agenda of of how you grow your business. You know, so for example, in, in our technical fiber business, which traditionally was focused on Aerospace, you know, Boeing and Airbus and uh, and so on, but also uh, in uh, in the defence markets as uh, as well. And you know, by really understanding the ESG agenda, we over the last few years have focused our attention on moving away from fossil fuel uh, markets to to green energy markets, and we've been driving an agenda in, in hydrogen. And whereas uh, a few years ago, hydrogen was was pretty much none of our business. Uh, now it actually represents uh, you know over thirty percent of our technical fiber business uh, of manufacturing. Now over fifty uh, percent of the materials that go into uh, going to fuel cells, uh, and also recently we acquired a business that uh, manufactures uh, electrodes to produce green hydrogen as uh, as well. So yeah, so it's not just about adapting. Uh, the business that uh, you know, in the process you've got today, but it's also driving a commercial strategy moving forward as uh, as well. And where do you think other manufacturers can follow you? Well, clearly, not everyone's going to be making the same products as you. But you know, it, 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 I find it astonishing. You know, most manufacturers, the 
well over 90% don't even have ISO 14001, you know, the very basics of recycling, essentially. Um, what, what can manufacturers do to get on this journey? Do you know, I think there's a, there's a great opportunity to share best practice. And, and the best practice is less about the application because the applications will be unique depending on who the manufacturers are, but more about the process that, uh, that you've gone through. You know, really understanding, you know, why, why would you do this? And if we see this as a, as, a, as a burden and, you know, something that we need to tick the box on, frankly, it's not going to work. And it needs to be seen as a commercial proposition that's embedded within, within the company that really helps to drive a growth agenda moving, moving forward. I mean, who wouldn't want to reduce their energy bill? You know, who wouldn't want to reduce their, their landfill? Because even from, you know, despite it's got very strong ethical grounds and environmental grounds, but actually it, it's going to significantly benefit the P&L as, uh, as well. So it is a win-win, but it's about an attitude towards the, uh, towards the agenda. And the final one for me, James Cropper, like you say, 275 years young. Um, what, what's, a, what, you know, what's the future hold for the company? So we're, um, we've, over the years, we've been focused on you know, driving innovation and driving, driving change. So we're going to see that you know, moving forward, but we're going to see that on another level. And you know, I would anticipate that our global platform will, will ex- extend as well. You know, actually, just, just in the next few months, we're you know, launching a range of paper, which has got antiviral properties. Um, we're also launching a, a new range for um, plastic-free packaging in uh, in champagne, uh, and excitingly, we're working on uh, electrodes for for hydrogen, which you know the business that we've acquired recently. But to do that even more efficiently, and also with a greater life cycle as uh, as well. So you know, building on what we've got, but you know, some exciting things around the corner as well. Well, Phil, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on the on the podcast this week. And yeah, thanks a lot. And we'll catch up soon. I'm delighted. Thank you. Stu, what a fascinating uh, interview. Absolutely. Um, learned a lot over the last 20 minutes listening to, to Phil. And uh, any company that can survive in the market for 275 years, um, they need to be listened to. Yeah, they're doing something right, aren't they? And if, if you'd like to appear on the podcast, please do let us know by sending us uh, an email to podcast at mtdmfg.com. We would love to have you on. And also, please don't forget to download the MTD MFG app for exclusive content. It's available on both Android and iPhone at the usual stores. Stuart, the next story, one of my favorite of the week, features Lotus and they've, uh, they've unveiled the new Amira sports car. What a beautiful sports car. It really is, and uh, unfortunately, this is a podcast, so you, you can't see the imagery. But um, so this is Lotus's first brand new series production model in more than a decade, and it's a stunning mid-engine two-seat uh, sports car, priced at around sixty thousand pound. It will go on sale to all the key global markets next spring, and is the um, the last internal combustion engine um, um, powered car that uh, the Lotus will build before the British market fully embraces electrification. The Emiri will be built at a new factory at Lotus's site in Hethel, which is part of a £100 million investment in the manufacturer's UK facilities, um, which we've covered in a, on a previous podcast. Yeah, and, and just on that, you know, I'm all for electric vehicles, um, sustainability and all the rest of it. But, I, you know, Lotus, <laughs> it's great. it is great to see one last uh, hooray, isn't it? Hurrah, rather. I know, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, people have commented. It, it, uh, it was so well received on social media. We, we posted in different formats, you know, a video again this morning as well. And, uh, but people are saying the same thing. Yeah. You know, they realized the journey we're on 
towards electrification, but um, they are they are just going to miss the the pure grunt of a of a you know a, a petrol engine. And at sixty thousand pounds, don't get me wrong, I'm sure options and you can buy one more expensive. But it, it, it's don't get me wrong, it's not for everybody. But it's quite a low barrier to entry for a car, you know, a car of that of, of that quality, isn't it? Absolutely. And if you see it, you know, people have been converted to Ferrari and, you know, another supercars. And, and as you say, you know, £60,000 price point, it's, um, it seems, I won't say the word cheap because it's a, it's a huge amount of money, but uh, it seems remarkably low uh, for, for, for what the car, a car appears to be. Yeah, well... Hopefully we'll have to start making some money at this podcast, Stuart, and you, we can have one. Each, but, uh, yeah, please, please send money. We, we, we have to do a Bob Geldof bit now, Joe. Please send your money. <laughs> so next story, food manufacturer, back of all, they've uh, launched a, a colossal recruitment drive. Yeah, huge. Um, back of all, UK's leading manufacturer of fresh prepared food has announced that it's recruiting for 1,500 food production jobs um, across its 23 UK factories. Um the company produces meals, salads, pizza and bread and desserts for the UK's major supermarkets, including Tesco, M&S, Sainsbury's and Waitrose, and employs well, already employs around about 17,000 people in the UK. Brilliant. Uh, next one, WFEL Waffle. They've, um, they've you know, started production of the, new, the first Boxer armoured vehicle. This is something we, again, we covered some time ago, but it's good to see these stories actually when, when it comes live. Yeah, they're progressing. Um, the story's progressing quite quite rapidly now. So um, WFEL or Weffle, not sure. Please get in touch if you know the correct uh, pronunciation. Has commenced production of the, of the vehicles for the British Army. It's new multi-million pound factory in Stockport. And this is the first time in a number of years that armoured vehicles have actually been manufactured in the UK. In addition to manufacturing the armoured hulls for the British Army's new vehicles, the company will be responsible for the assembly, integration and testing of a total of 225 boxes. And this is part of the £2.3 billion contract signed between the MOD and Artec in November 2019. The contract supports more than 1,000 jobs across the UK, including 120 at the Stockport site. Just, just another great, another great week in the world of manufacturing, Stuart. Again, as always, there's so many stories we can't cover on a podcast, unfortunately, because we do try and keep it to this half an hour slot. But what, what a, what a, what a week! Fantastic. It's unreal, and uh, you know we've been doing this. I think this is episode fourteen of the podcast. We, we haven't struggled for content in any week, which was a bit of a fear, wasn't it? You know, at the beginning it would be some kind of fallow weeks, and um, but. Hundreds and hundreds of million pounds are being invested in, in the sector. Thousands of jobs, jobs are being created. Companies from all the, all over the world are setting up in the UK. Long may it continue. Yeah, so that brings the end to this week's podcast. Um, Stuart's off to speak to Lotus about a sponsored car. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank Stuart himself, Phil Wilder, James Cropper. But as always, the biggest thank you goes to you at home for listening. And, and we'll catch you up next week. Thanks for listening to the Great British Manufacturing Podcast. Get to subscribe and leave a rating and a review. You can find us on Twitter using at MTDMFG and at Jefferson underscore MFG.